Hello and welcome to Fans, a brand new podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, and in which I speak to people I like, find interesting, or both, about, well, being fans. Yes, it's another football podcast, but hopefully something a little different to what's out there already. Deep dive chats exploring what it means to follow clubs in England and beyond, with a range of guests touching on their childhood memories, favourite players and games, present day highs and lows, as well as hopes for the future. And I'm delighted to say that joining me for this very first episode is the host of the excellent Everton podcast, The Blue Room, and all around top toffee. It's Matt Jones. Matt, how are you? I'm very well, mate. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a privilege to be the, the first guest on this. Uh, but yeah, always good to, to have a chat about Everton, albeit with a red on a Friday night in sweltering conditions here in Liverpool. But uh, no, <laughs> great to be on, and uh, it sounds like an interesting concept. Yeah, no, I really do appreciate being on. Yeah, don't worry, I'm not going to take the piss. That's not the that's not the <laughs> end of this. I'm not stuck you in an oven-like room on Merseyside to mock you yeah. and uh, go on about Liverpool winning a 19th league title and all things like that. I'm gonna talk it, about was, it was it was going to be that. It might have been your first and shortest podcast. <laughs> yeah, very much. We'll touch on the Reds for obvious reasons. It's kind of inevitable mm. when talking about Everton mm. and uh, you being up there and stuff. But uh, no, I really do appreciate you being on, man. You just finished recording episode of the Blue Room as well. Is that all right? Yeah, it was just on a transfer show, yeah. So sort of like I said, on a, on a Friday night, it's, it's cracking the flags here, but I've got nothing better to do than sit in and, and talk about Everton. Um, but yeah, obviously Everton not doing much in terms of transfer business at the moment. But um, yeah, just sort of looking at the targets that have been linked, uh, alternatives to the big names that have been linked. And, you know, we had, we had a lot on um, anyone wants, you know, wants more Everton information, uh, Michael Greenall, Greenall ESC on Twitter. And it was the first time he's, he's, he's been on any podcast at all. So it's, you know, oh, really? it's, it's great that, you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's new people getting involved in it, um, different ways of thinking about the game, you know, really into his data, his analysis and that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's, it was enlightening for me. And it's, it's good that we, you know, we're getting these people giving the different perspectives when it, when it comes to different sorts of things on the Blue Room. So, yeah, really enjoyed it, just like I said, despite the, uh, the circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. No, excellent. Really good. As I said, the Blue Room is fantastic. I am a red, but I listen to it regularly. Because, um, well, I just, I do find Everton fascinating. Uh, and in a way, we're going to touch on that in the first question, really, because we will go back to, to how, you know, how and why you support Everton. But before we do, I, I kind of want to touch on something that, um, you said relatively recently in regards to supporting the club, and which I found to be really profound, and I think might touch on the state of mind that a lot of Everton fans, but, but perhaps perhaps your generation specifically, have about the club. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but it was an episode of Blue Room, perhaps about a year ago, maybe two years ago, and you were talking about how someone suggested to you that um, you should write a book about the club, and you said um, you, hadn't, you weren't going to do it, or you said you had no plan to do it, and you weren't even comprehending doing it because in your time supporting the club, and you're 31, so sort of mm. 20 years or so in terms of actually knowing what's going on, nothing particularly interesting or notable had happened. You know, a load of mid-table finishes, uh, no trophies, no great European runs, and it's all been a bit mm. mundane. And so I said, it really stuck with me that, and thinking about it, and I had to speaking to you today, I sort of wonder if the biggest emotion you feel about Everton is perhaps the worst one any football fan can have, and that's apathy. And that more than anything, you're just a bit fed up with Everton. Yeah, it, it, it does fluctuate, to be honest. I think even when, you know, I've, I've said for a while that I think Everton are quite boring. I can understand why people outside of the Everton bubble will just look at Everton and go, well, they're always going to be there. They're always going to make overpriced signings. They're going to be about mid-table and they're just going to exist. They're just going to exist in, in, in the Premier League. And I think that's, that's how a lot of supporters conceive Everton. And a lot of people get quite annoyed about that. 
because they'll say, well, we've won nine league titles and five FA Cups, you know, we should be thought of as, as a big football club. But, you know, the last time Everton won something, as you know, I'm sure anyone listening to this knows, was, was 1995. So, you know, the whole generation has passed about Everton being relevant in that sense. And I think what, what's been frustrating about it is that there's, it, they've been boring, but within that, that boredom and within that, you know, what you get from Everton, there's just been litanies of bad decisions, mm. wrong choices, and it's it's the frustration of, of you know potentially if, if they made the right decision or they signed the right player or did something a little bit different then they could be a force and they could go on to do something actually quite decent. But it's just been it's the same cycle over and over again. You get to the start of a new season with a new manager, you think things are going right, it goes wrong, and you get a new manager. And that's probably been what it's like for the the second half of my life supporting Everton, if you will. The first half. Under David Moyes, you know, at the time, you know, towards the end of Moyes, it felt like it sort of come to a natural conclusion. And I remember saying after the 2012 um, loss to Liverpool at Wembley in the, the FA Cup semi-final, that, that probably should have been it for him, really. It felt mm. like he'd taken the team as far as, as he could then. But, you know, I remember the frustration at that side and where Everton were at that point. But sitting here now thinking, bloody hell, I'll kill for those days again. <laughs> you know, finishing finishing fifth, sixth every season, you know, signing gems of players that go on to be really good and I think yeah it's just it's it's the, the most recent years that have been frustrating I think because even within this this mundaneity and knowing when everything's going to get finished there's been frustration and there's been anger but they've still just been in the same place and you know in, in some respects that's when you have those low moments um, and when you have those chaotic moments it's been good and I'm, I'm talking about that as a, a broadcaster now because people want to come and listen to, to everything stuff and the content they want to get your opinions and that's when we we, we do well really um as opposed to, you know in addition to when the, the team are doing well people want to listen in that sense but in the main it's been hard and going back to what you said about writing a book it's it, it is one of them i mean what would what would people read like, like i said people look at everton and think they just exist you know outside of the everton bubble what would no i'll ask you what 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 would you be interested in reading a book about everton in the last 10 years i mean Aside from maybe Leighton Baines, who's retired recently, who thinks an interesting character with a, a great ever story and was a wonderful footballer, there's not really been anything else, really. There's, there's, there's no stories or anecdotes or anything like that. And So just before, before I finish, the, um, Dave Prentice, who writes for the Liverpool Echo, he's a bit of a you know, journalistic legend up in, yeah. up in these parts. He, he's brought out a book recently about, uh, I think he's bringing up a book recently about his time reporting on Everton and some of the great stories he's got. And I spoke to him recently for a feature for, for the Blue Room and he, and he sort of said, well, it's not really about what's happened now because you don't get that access as a journalist anymore to, to the players. You don't speak to the manager every day like you used to. So I think it's hard for everyone. Um, and ultimately that, that's our challenge when it, when it comes to the Blue Room is to make our content engaging and interesting, even though the football team isn't always. Yeah. No, I think I think that's why it really stuck with me what you said because because I was listening to it at the time and I and I sort of turned away and I thought, what would you write a book about Everton about you know based on the, the last twenty years based on since that win against United at Wembley in ninety five and as you say there's mm. you know it, even if something had gone terrible I mean Leeds fans could write quite an interesting book about dropping down a division Absolutely. and you haven't yeah. haven't even got that I mean almost <laughs> sounds awful to say almost being relegated at least be exciting at least going into yeah. The championship, you'd you know Everton in the championship, you'd lose a few players, but you'd probably get promoted quite soon. So you'd have the excitement of a promotion charge, a playoff, mm. you know, semi-final, automatic, you know, actually getting your hands on that trophy as well, even if it'll be the, the first division trophy as well. So now I agree with you. I think that's the thing is, as you say, Everton's kind of kind of 
exist to exist in a way, haven't they, over the last 20 years? Um, sort of in yeah, that sort of seventh to tenth area. And I suppose that's why where we are, where we are as, as fans as well, because I think there's, there's two things in football, isn't it, which, which bring supporters together. It, it's adversity or success. And I think, yeah. you know, what you said about Leeds there is, is absolutely right. You know, they've, they've had mainly adversity and a bit of success. And you, and you look at the... You know, the way in which their support is, the fanatical, you know, the way in which they you know, still get good attendances at Alan Road, it, it's brought that, it's brought that fan base together. And then you've got the success side of it, which is what's going on across the park at the moment with Liverpool. You know, I remember before Jürgen Klopp came in, Liverpool's fan base was, you know, still passionate, but quite fractured. You know, there were supporters walking out the ground with, due, due to protests at times over ticket mm. prices and that sort of thing. And it felt like there was a lot of issues there at the football club and the fan base wasn't really united. Well, yeah, and Klopp's come in, the team started doing well, and look at it now. You know, there's there's events in Liverpool, boss nights and all that with Jamie, which, which don't get me wrong, I wouldn't go to, and I don't think a lot of Everton need to go to anyway, just by the, the virtue of the, the cultures of the two club being a bit different. But there's fan initiatives, there's creativity, there are supporters who are driving things forward. And I think that's because of the success. And where Everton are at the moment, I think a lot of supporters look at them and shrug their shoulders. We haven't had that adversity to bring us together. Mm. We haven't had that success to bring us together. And I think people just look at it as like, well, we enjoy going to match and it's good to see your mates and it's good to go to the game. But there isn't that extra bit, which I think um, a lot of teams have had that have either gone through something really bad or gone through, gone through something really good. Yeah. The adversity thing is really interesting you say that. I mean, I'm, I really remember that time at Liverpool when, um, I mean, I went on, you know, on the brink of administration at one stage and, you know, when Hicks and mm-hmm. Gillette were in charge. And it's funny how you say that, actually, because obviously everything is great at the moment. But I quite enjoyed sort of recounting the stories of that time, perhaps because everything is great at the moment and you can laugh about it now. But like I remember going to Wolves at home in December 2010 when Roy Hodgson was manager and we lost him. I think we were like six mm. points above the relegation zone or something and the football was absolutely dire and all the fans were calling for Kenny Dalglish. And it was absolutely horrendous, but it is a memory. As you say, it's something at least that, that happened. And uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, those, those moments of adversity do bring you together. At least they just get your emotions running more than anything, don't they? Just, they don't leave you cold. They, uh, yeah, they get you going. Yeah, because I think, you know, even in recent years, you, you look at what happened last season at Everton when, you know, Carlo Ancelotti came in. Sorry, Marcus Hill was sacked after that wretched performance at Anfield and Everton were in the bottom three then. But, but even then, the, the, the jeopardy of a relegation, of relegation really happening didn't really, you know, mm. be, you know, in those moments after the game when you come off the ground and, you know, you go on Twitter and you, you speak on the shows, you go, bloody hell, these lads could actually get relegated. Then you take yourself away from it and, and you know, you look at the squad we've got and, and that sort of thing and you think, well, no, they're, they're probably not actually, you know, there's, there's enough quality there, quality in inverted commas there, um, albeit the fight might not be to pull everything out of that. So there hasn't been that jeopardy and I think people, like I said, people just shrug the shoulders in that regard, you know, even when Everton appointed Sam Allardyce, you know, two, two, three years ago now, it's, even then, it was one of those where, well, do we really need this? And I think it's 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 those sorts of things, and those sorts of decisions, and and that sort of inherent belief that you know we're probably going to be all right, but who really cares about all right? It's mm. you know I think the club's just drifted and, and sleptwalked a little bit. And I suppose the dangerous thing with that looking forward is that if you keep sleepwalking, the fan base is apathetic. You're going to get into one of those relegation scraps at some point, and you're not going to get out of it. But you know, sitting here now, Everton have got a world-class coach in charge and, and you'd, you'd like to think that that does count for something, at least going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right, let's go back to the very start then. So, mm-hmm. um, how does Matt Jones, why and when and how does Matt Jones become an Evertonian? Not particularly exciting story. I think it's quite a 
classic one. Um, my dad was a blue. Um, he went the jammy bastard in the eighties when everything were, were quite good. Um, one stuff he went around Europe watching us. He went around the country watching us, seeing league titles. You know, European honours, winning the FA Cup as well. Um, and then I think when me and my sister were born in the early nineties, he stopped going the game. And then obviously when I got to the age where he could start taking me again and started going and we sort of, I, I got a season ticket when I was about 15, I think. Um, so I was going pretty regularly then. And then the seat next to me came up uh, free. And, you know, that's quite rare at Everton, you know, albeit the joke, so we can't fill our ground stuff. We sold out every home game for about three seasons in a row now in the Premier League. Is that jokes that Everton not selling their ground, is it? I've not heard that. Oh, yeah. Gets it, but yeah. Gets it, it's, 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 because you, it's because you hang around with uh, eligible Reds, mate. You won't indulge in that sort of thing, I imagine. But, um, yeah, there is there is a lot of uh, I've seen a few things about that, but you know, okay. but the, the ticket the ticket came up next to to, to me. Effectively, yeah. I was like, right, you know, to me, dad, you know, you need to get back and see ticket, get a see tickets again. I don't necessarily think it's helped him really. <laughs> I don't think his life's been improved by it in any, <laughs> any sense, but but it's it, you know, it's it's nice to have that sort of you know, knowing you're going to see. Yeah, your yeah. dad every 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 couple of weeks of the match, and it, it, it's not something you know I ever really take for granted. But you know, in regards to my family, um, unfortunately, me and my dad for a long time were the only blues in our family. Um, I had uh, five other cousins who were all reds. Uh, my granddad, who is eighty next year, has had a scene since at Liverpool for about fifty-five years, I think, something like that. Um, my uncle's got a scene tickets at Liverpool. Um, my mum and my sister are Reds as well. Um, so me and my dad have been outnumbered for a long time in, in, in that sense. But, uh, you know, sometimes I say to him, why do you, you know, I think, why didn't you just let me go with all them? And I have to actually have a, a normal time watching footy. <laughs> but, you know, um, you know, I, I, in all seriousness, I, I wouldn't swap it uh, in that sense. But, yeah, not, 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 a, not a particularly exciting story, but... Uh, you know, just a, a quite traditional one in that sense. Yeah. Well, Liverpool's quite unique in the sense that it's a two-club two city, but I would suggest, well, certainly not like Glasgow and probably not like Manchester. As you touch on there, it's, it's very common for families to be mixed. You know, a dad who's a blue, a mm. mum who's a red. You know, mum and dad are both blue, uncles and aunts, who, who lo- there's loads of reds. I mean, first of all, how, how common is that among other uh, Liverpool and Everton fans that you know in the city and how close did you become to being a red was it because your dad was, a blue? was it always going to be a blue or because you've got so many other family members being red was there even just one like day where you were actually a Liverpool fan well I remember once uh, well, a couple of stories on this I remember once when I was about five and didn't really know what was going on my granddad took me to a Liverpool game um, because they had a free ticket I don't think my dad was particularly happy about that um <laughs> But in the same breath, um, I remember one year, me mum and dad, when I was, this must be about 1999, so I would have been 10, um, they got me tickets for the Boxing Day Everton game. They, they played Bolton, played Bolton at home, and my dad had uh, climbed to the fever, so he couldn't take me. So me, me mum asked their dad, who's the Liverpool team ticket holder 55 wow. years, like, you know, could you take, can you take Matt the match? Being the lovely fellow he is, he, he, he agreed to, to take me that day. And um, Everton won 3 2, and Duncan Ferguson scored a hat trick. And Liverpool were playing Newcastle that night. So my granddad was driving back, um, you know, back, driving back home, and he put yeah. Radio City on and put the Liverpool game on the, the radio. And uh, bearing in mind, he just had to sit um, at Goodison Park for, for 90 minutes and watch Everton win and not, not, you know, not, not show any reactions or any, anything like that. Um, 
after about two minutes in that game, I think Steve Watson scored, put Newcastle 1-0 up against Liverpool. And apparently I went, yes, get in. He said he nearly threw me out the car on, on Scotland Road. Talk about <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, um, but you know, we, we've, always had, we've always had that sort of, of relationship yeah. with, you know, certainly with our family. You know, one of the, one of the worst moments of my life was after the, um, the Anfield derby where um, we've had so many bad ones down the years. But one of the most particularly awful ones was the Jordan Pickford one. I'm sure everyone knows which one I'm talking about straight away when, when I say that. And I'd agreed to meet my grandma. Or as we call court. it, the Divock Origi game. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. 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 <laughs> but I, I don't know what the pub's called. It's outside Anfield. So it's basically opposite the cop. And it's like, if you're coming out, it's on the right-hand side on the corner. Uh, oh, I think I know which one you mean. I don't drink that. I drink at the Sandin, which is across the petrol station. Yeah. The cop, but but I know which one you mean. It's, sh- it's like a sharp right, isn't it? I know which one you yeah, mean. Yeah. I remember what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. It's where well, they sell, um, like, there's like flag stands and scarf scans stands. Yeah. That, 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 that yeah. sounds familiar. Yeah. But before the game, it said to him, like, you know, I'll meet you, I'll meet you for a pint after the game. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I just remember walking out of Anfield and trudging across that pub. And I was like, I was like, I'm just going to go home. And then I thought, do you know what? Sometimes, you know, and, and albeit it seems like it's always Evertonians doing this, but for just sometimes you've got to take your medicine. So yeah. I went in, I went in and stood there um, while that replay was shown on Sky over and over again. Every time the ball hit the bar, there was a cheer. When he flapped on it, there was oh, a cheer. When he really God. headed it in, there was a cheer. I just remember stood there and, you know, just wanted the world to swallow me up. It was, it was horrendous, but, you know, I think, I think, you know, hopefully when one day Everton become a, a force and, and their heads are, are scrapping around the mid-table, that they'll remember that and, you know, um, <laughs> remember what it was like and how, how magnanimous I was in, in those occasions. But I think, you know, it, it has been hard for Evertonians, but I think in the main, there is a, you know, begrudging respect for what's going on at Liverpool at the moment. And, you know, people can still have a bevy with the families and talk about football and, and it can still be fine. Albeit, you, you go on social media, you see posts on forums and it, it can get horrible and bitter. But I think in the main, when, you, when you're actually face-to-face with somebody in your family or a friend, you know, having a chat about footy, it, it's absolutely fine. Does that help, having so many family members who are Reds? So, you know... No. To go back to Glasgow, you know, if you're a Rangers fan, you know, you probably haven't got Celtic family members. And so if Celtic are doing amazingly well as they are at the moment, it's, it's just the bitterness, you know. You don't know the warmth of the you know, of, of, of local rivals, which there can be, and it feels like it certainly is on Merseyside. Yeah, I think, I think you're probably right in, in that sense, you know. It's just, like I said, it's... Uh, when you see people going at each other online about various things, and it's, it's, it's hard when people bring up stuff like Heysel, and, you know, you see Evertonian saying stupid stuff about that, and you see, you know, I, I cringe when I'm in the away end, and I hear people singing murders, I absolutely hate it. And you see Reds taking, you know, Stalbuker-esque flags to Goodison Park and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's absolutely horrendous. But those are things that happen when you're either you're in a, a small minority at, at the ground or you're in a group and you're singing across from people yeah. or you see it online. It's, it's, it's not when you're face-to-face in a boozer yeah. with one of your mates or, or with your family and stuff like that. And I think having, having that connection, I think, I think you're right, it, it probably has helped me um, in that sense because, you know, yeah, but I, I I know what you know. I've, I've spoken to my granddad after derby matches, and you know he he was at he was at um, you know Hillsborough 
that day in 1989, thankfully, in, in the stand above with my uncle. And when you when you see the stuff that's said about that, and you, you know, you see the stuff that's said about high school, you know, I, I can see how much it hurts him. It, it, it's yeah. absolutely horrendous. Um, but I think a lot of people who, who maybe haven't got that that sort of that sort of sounding board, if you will, and that sort of that those people in your lives, uh, or maybe those people who don't go to the match and don't speak to the mates before the game and that sort of stuff, it is all done online. Mm. Probably don't have that. Um, so I think probably you know, to answer your original question, I think it, it certainly helped me. Probably, you know, they'll probably say I'm still dead bitter about, <laughs> uh, about, about, about Liverpool, but I think it, it, in all seriousness, I think it probably has been a help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen to you in the blue room. You seem like one of the uh, less or least bitter blues I know. Um, <laughs> most bitter blue I know. I won't mention by name. It's a guy I work with who's a, who's a who's an Everton fan. And when I joined the Guardian, we had like an in, inter-office fantasy football league. So this is around 2007. Mm. Um, and you know, you come up with sort of wacky team names. I can't remember which, what mine was. And his team name was 10 Games from Greatness, which I don't even remember mm. was that famous Gerard Julio quote from 2002 when he said, yeah. 10 Games from Greatness. And that was his team name. And I just thought, that's, that's unbelievable to have that kind of <laughs> bitter hatred for Liverpool. Like, celebrate everything. Like, he's, a, he's of an age, like, he, he, you know, he was there mm. in 85 in Vienna and things like that. And I'm thinking, you're focusing that, that much on Liverpool. Yeah, it's, um, mm. it's needless unnecessary. I think that's been a, that you know that is one issue for Everton though, isn't it? You know the the, the spectre of, of Liverpool, and it's not just them being a a force at the moment. I think for for a long time, you know, even stuff the club have done, you know, it's been geared towards what's going on at, at Liverpool, and there's been nods towards Liverpool and jibes towards Liverpool and that sort of stuff. And you know, I think I think you know we did it. We did a really interesting show last week um, in regards to Everton's presence or lack of presence yeah. in the city, and we had um, Frank McKenna on, who, who runs a company called Downtown and Business, and we had um, Carl Roper on, who's like a, a trade union rep. And you know, one of the points Carl made is effectively, you know, just you know, just because we haven't won eighteen, sorry, nineteen now, well, nineteen league titles, yeah, and and six <laughs> European cups doesn't mean we can't shout and scream from the, from the rooftops about what Everton have done in regards to what they've done in the past, you know, the great work they do in the community now. Now, it's fine to say that, but I think there's, there is probably a bit of a fear in regards to to a lot of Blues and, and a lot of Blues supporters in, in regard, you know, just, just in puffing your chest out a little bit sometimes, just saying, well, you know, we've got a good history as well, you know, we, we've, got, we've got a world-class manager and I'm, I'm probably guilty of that, to be fair as well, it's probably something I do and because you know you're going to get shouted down on Twitter. You know, you know, you know, a red might listen to your podcast and call you, call you a knobhead for, for, for something like that. And maybe you need to be a bit bolder, a bit more proud about what support and everything. But, but like I said, it, it, it is hard. So <laughs> it is hard sometimes in that sense. Yeah. No, I, I listened to that discussion. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I thought it was really, mm. really interesting. It's something I've thought for a while as well. I don't live on Merseyside, obviously, but I've seen a lot of the murals mm. either on social media or mm. when I have come up for the game and stuff. And it has sort of struck me that that's got to be an issue. You know, you've got a clock mural, you've got the Henderson one now, there's mm. the big Trent one. And I just thought, I don't think I've ever seen any Everton murals, either, again, mm. online or, or in the city. And uh, it was a fascinating discussion. I would recommend anyone, mm. you know, whoever you support, blue, red, whoever, just go listen to it because I think it really touches on the difficulty of sharing a city with another with a club that's got you know when your levels of success are so different it must mm. be hard it must as you said as you touch on sort of sort of creating the inferiority complex that, mm. that you've got sort of smashed down i mean i'm sort of with carl really i think you guys have just got to sort of impose yourself a little bit more and, and yeah celebrate your, mm. if you can't celebrate the present celebrate the past get just get being real yeah. kendall or alan ball or whatever on there there's a, there's a phrase I'm sure you've heard, you know, cop-out behaviour, and I think that that's an issue as yeah. well. Where a lot, a lot of Evertonians will, if there's a mural, 
you know, say if, if say if the, if the blue room said, right, we're gonna we're gonna you know raise some money and we're gonna put a mural up of you know something to do with Carlo Angelotti or Leighton Baines or Howard Kendall or Alan Ball, any of them, and it went somewhere in town. You will get some people messaging us saying, well, why are you doing that? That's copyright behaviour. But like, why, why is that called copyright behaviour? Why why is celebrating your club copyright behaviour? I find because I know it, that it's not other things as well. It's really I find that really strange. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it is, but I think that there's a lot. There is a, there is a section who sort of would say that you know. I think that you know this isn't this isn't just blues. But this this has happened in, in every fan base in regards to you know every club has different cultures and different ways of supporting the team and that sort of thing. But it's it's stuff like um, if Everton have flares outside the ground before a big game, people would say, well, "Why are you doing that? That's what, that's what the Reds do. That's got big yeah. yeah. And it's, it's stuff like the, the mural now because it, there is so many, like you said, and there's so many recognisable ones about Liverpool now. If Everton, Evertonians put one up, the people, you know, why are you doing that stuff? That's what the Reds do. And I think I think there is a bit of that to it. But again, that, I think ultimately that that all comes back to sort of what I said earlier. You know, when you've got success and everyone's enjoys going to the match mm. and watching the team, people get creative and get passionate and want to do these sorts of things. Whereas when you're you know scratching around in, in twelve and you're not really done anything for a while, people sort of go, well, you know, do we, you know, should we put a mural up? What are we gonna, what are we going to do one about? And on that show, I think you know what. One of the other guests, Kate Riley James, said, "Is that you know I want it to mean something if we put something up." And I think I think that's the important thing. It, it would have to mean something. But even then, yeah. I think you get some people saying, "Well, why are you doing that?" That's what the Reds do. Yeah, I get, I get the sense. I guess I, I get I get that to an extent. I guess if it's something Liverpool fans have done, then it, there's that sense that you're copying them, and that's as an Evertonian, that's the very last thing you want to do. So yeah, it makes mm-hmm. some sense. Um, now, Matt, ahead of recording this, I asked you to provide me with two things. Which was mm-hmm. details of the first Everton game that you that you went to, and your all-time eleven Everton eleven based on players you've seen sport in the club. You've done the latter, and we'll come on to that. Um, but in regards to the former, um, <laughs> I find this pretty extraordinary. You haven't provided me the details because, as you put it, you're not sure what your first game was. What self-respecting um, football fan can't remember their first game? Oh, terrible! It's, it's absolutely terrible, isn't it? And I've been asked that question so many times, and I, I genuinely don't know. Um, the, the, the only thing I remember really is seeing the pitch for the first time and again that's quite cliched and everyone talks about that but that that is my abiding memory of being in a football ground for the first time was you know, bloody hell that's green and big yeah. uh, that's, that, 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 that's what I thought but I'd, I'd, I'd have to ask my dad I've never actually asked him actually but I always remember my, probably my earliest football memory um, aside from my dad coming out from the 1995 Cup Final is um being at a pre-season game against Tranmere and we left early because we were about 4-1 down. There's something mad like that. Um, my earliest memory of Goodison Park is John Collins missing a penalty against Aston Villa. Um, and I remember before the game, everyone sort of saying, oh, John Collins, you know, he's, he's a maestro, he's dead skillful, he's going to be brilliant this season. And I, Albeit I don't think he was as bad as people make out now. Um, that wasn't the best start for him when he stepped up and missed that penalty that day. Um, but yeah, it, like I said, it is it is terrible, isn't it? I'll have to I'll have to find out for me dad what it was, but they're my earliest memories, certainly. Oh God, you've got to ask him. It's just one of those kind of rites of passage. Your first game, you've got to remember. I'll, I'll text him after this. Actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, definitely do that. And in regards to that, try me a pre-season friendly. When you told me that, because you did tell me that as well, that like one of your earliest mm. memories going to that uh, going to a pre-season friendly at Prenton Park as it would have been so I did a bit of research obviously knowing your age so you're born in 89 is that right because you're 31 yeah yeah, yeah that's right yeah so you're born you were born in 89 and I was thinking was it Tranmere 3 Everton nil on Saturday 19th of July 1997 so you would have been sort of eight was, was that 
game. Possibly. Oh no, I think it might might have been earlier. Maybe that that was it actually. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I'll have to, I'll ask Scott about that. But that, that 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 does sound sort of similar to what what actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Tranmere three Everton nil. Saturday, ninth of July, nineteen ninety seven. Something quite interesting from that game is that Everton had a trialist in goal that day. Um, Zab Olux Safar. I probably uh, almost certainly not pronounce that right uh, but he came from Vasa CV in Hungary it was his one and only appearance for the club um, any recollections of Zab? No unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, based on the scoreline he wasn't very good no, although, exactly. although Tramia beat Everton 3-0 uh, five years later anyway didn't he in the FA Cup so it maybe was. it was a sign of things to come yeah that, that, that Tramia I remember um, before that it was my dad was always like, oh, you know, you never go, the, you never leave early. You know, he'd always yeah, say you yeah. never leave early. You know, I, I leave early all the time now. Um, <laughs> but but that, was the, that was the only game for about probably 15 years we went together where we got off early that day. Um, yeah. As, as Tramia supporters, remember we called it St. Yates' Day, let me say. You know, Jason, Jason Kumas rocked up and ran us ragged and we, and we lost 3-0 um, when we left after about 70 minutes. But that was the only time we left early up until recently where... I'm sort of at the age now where they'd rather be in the booze than watching Everton toil and scratch about <laughs> on a scratch about on a football pitch. That's fair enough. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I don't know if that's a game, but uh, yeah, I hope it is. Yeah. That means even though you don't remember, you got sounds to see right. Zab. Yeah, yeah, you got to see Zab. <laughs> uh, his name is crazy. So Zab is S Z A B Olux O L C S Safar S A F A R, and the other players who played that day: Earl Barrett, Slavin Bilic, Dave Watson, Terry Fulham. Uh. Tony Grant, Graeme Stewart, Gary Speed, Nick Barnby, Michael Branch, and Duncan Ferguson. So, not a bad side, though. I was going to say, not, yeah. It's got to be 3 0, yeah. I know. Well, it's a pre season game. So, fucking no one's really trying, yeah. are they? Um, <laughs> excellent. So, as I said, you were born, born in 89. So, when is your kind of understanding of what it means to be an Everton fan really kind of forming? Like, you're really aware of the managers, you're really aware of the players, are you really aware of the rhythms of the season? When's that really happened for you? Probably about. When I was about 10, but like I said, I remember my, my earliest memories of watching Everton, well, my earliest Everton memories, my dad coming over in the cup final in 95, mm. so I would have been six. Um, that Tramia game as well, going, but I remember watching Andre Kanchelskis on the telly, I'm thinking, oh my word, I want, I want to be this fella. Um, he was just, you know, he had, he had absolutely everything. And I was never allowed to get me his name on the back of my shirt. Because you know, <laughs> of the cost. Because yeah, by, by then, you had to pay every letter, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. Like about 12, <laughs> or 12 letters long. And, you know, fun, you know recent, well, probably about two years ago now, me and Dave interviewed him for the Blue Room. And um, Dave probably loves him more than I do. Well, he definitely Dave's does love him more than yeah, I do. Dave absolutely and, loves um, him. He adores him. Yeah, and we, we, you know, we've done loads of these those sorts of things in the past and sort of spoke to high-profile players, but we were both just sort of like, oh my God, it's Andre. It's, it's, it's yeah. amazing. I remember, doing, I remember doing the intro and we had to start it again because I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, welcome to the Blue Room. It's, uh, we got into today, it's Andre Kachelskis. And he was like, was like what, what, what did you say? I was like, so, so nervous trying to speak to him. But, but um, I remember he was the first player. So I was like, wow. Uh, Gary Speed as well. I had Speed on the back of me ever since he, he was brilliant for the top piece for a bit. Yeah. Um, but I remember, I remember when we appointed Walter Smith and my dad said, you know, this fellow's won titles at Rangers, so he's going to be good for us. Didn't quite work out like that, of course. Um, but in terms of going and being up to speed with the, the pattern of the season, probably after Moyes signed, I think the first, yeah, the, the first time I was fully invested in the campaign was his second season. But I think Everton finished um, eighth, lost out on Europe on the last day because United beat us 2-1 at Goodison. David Beckham scored and probably the best free kick I've ever seen. 
I, I, you know, in my life, um, ridiculous. Um, and that was the first time I remember thinking, like, you know, going to the games, wanting to go to the games, listening to it on the radio all the time. You know, being a keep, you know, being aligned with the players, seeing who we're going to be signing, and all that sort of thing. So, so probably about then. So that would have been. 2003, 2004, I'd say. No, 2002, 2003, it was. Because 2003, 2004 was horrendous. Yeah. 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 Well, come on to Moyes in a second. I just want to go back to Kanchelsis, actually, because um, he is in your, your, old, mm. you know, your all-time Everton 11, which we will come on to. Honestly, we will, right at the end of the podcast. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I obviously remember Kanchelsis really well. I'm, I'm like 10 years older than you. I remember when he was at United and he was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, just proper old-fashioned winger. Seemed to be the fastest player in the Premier League. And his stats are, are pretty remarkable. So he spent two years Everton between 95 and 97, 60 appearances, 22 goals, which I'd say for a winger's not bad. And I guess most famously from your point as well, you got two in that win at Anfield in November 95 as well. I mean, you mm. were so young when he was there. I mean, you were six stroke seven. What, why did he have such an impact for you? And just how good was he for Everton? Was it, was it the same as he was at United? Because I can't really remember his impact at Everton, I've got to be honest. The, the first season, he was, he was unbelievable. And like, maybe he didn't appreciate how good, you know. I, I think if, if you could ask Evertonians, you know, in terms of just the, the, the quality of a campaign, who, what's the best season you've ever seen from an Everton player? I'd say people probably go back to his first season at Everton wow. um, okay. because yeah. he was he was ridiculous. And like you said, it, it's not like now where you have wide players like um, you know Sterling or Salah Mane who effectively play as you know wide strikers. You know he, he was he was somebody who was a, a wide midfielder, mm. and he was just it was, it was just everything about him. It was just. He always played with a smile on his face. He was quite unorthodox, like you said. He was, he was quite a big lad. He was, he was great in the air for, for a wide player. He could carry the ball. Um, he wasn't really someone who was like flash with step overs and you know and flicks and tricks and everything. Albeit later in his career, he was famous, wasn't he, for doing the, the jump up in the air and spin around and yeah, standing yeah, on the yeah. ball at, at yeah. ranges. Yeah, it was like um, a fine, I think, wasn't it, Hamden? Yeah, think. yeah. And he but, he, but he just got the ball, and defenders were like, well, you know. Do not want to do not want a piece of this lad. I'm just going to back off and back off and back off. And he he, he typically t- took it away. But um, it was just everything about him. It was just you know being that young, I didn't appreciate you know what a coup it was for Everton to get him. Because like you said, at United he was part of title winning teams and he was he was really exciting. He scored goals and you know, scored goals in big games. But I mean, it didn't work out for him really in the second season. And Everton sold him to Fiorentina for quite a. A big fee. I mean, his book is unbelievable. If anyone, if anyone should, you know, is looking for something to read at the moment, you know, he got it, got involved in with the mob in Florence and all that sort of stuff when oh, he was wow. out there. Um, you know, he was involved in like a bit of a hijacking and stuff like that. Just crazy story. But that year at Everton, he was just, he was unplayable. Kanchelskis, right out. Kanchelskis. Kanchelskis has scored his first goal for Everton and he scored it against Liverpool at the top end. I should think that's pretty much the way he dreamt it last night. Kanchelskis is supposed to provide the crosses for Rideout but it was the other way around and both of them performed their tasks superbly. Terrific centre and a really well-timed header by Andre Kanchelskis. Ebrill, Limpa, Scott Stewart and Kanchelskis ahead of him, Andre Kanchelskis, oh 2-0, it 
It's Andres Day. Everton lead by two to nil, and Kanchelskis has got them both. Some Derby debut. That was that was the year after, obviously after Everton won the cup, and it felt like they were forming a, a good side then. You know, you had Kanchelskis on, on one wing, like Anders Limpars on the other, you know, like technically good players who, who were doing really well and Obviously, it all unraveled for, for a bit for Joe Royal in the end because you know he wasn't allowed to sign Tor Andre Flo and basically accidentally ended up resigning from the from the football club, <laughs> which is a mad story in itself. But um, what's that? He you know, I don't know that. How, he accidentally resigned. So, so he, yeah, so he wanted to sign. Like, yeah, he wanted to sign Tor Andre Flo in January, I think, and he was going for about a million at that point, and he went and spoke to Peter Johnson about it and said, you know, no, we haven't got the money effectively. And effectively, the story Joe told us on the Blue Room was that he went into the meeting to talk about transfers and effectively ended up coming out of it having resigned. And yeah. he said to this day, he said him and Peter Johnson just sort of talked themselves into it. And, you know, things weren't going particularly well on the pitch at the time, but this is a fellow who won everything in the FA Cup after, you know, taking over when they were bottom of the table um, earlier that season. Um, got them to sixth place in the league the year after and was seemed like he was building something. But... Um, yeah, so effectively, Tor Andre Flo meant that Everton plunged into depths. They got Howard Kendall back for the third time, and they stayed up on the last day, didn't they, against, yeah. against Coventry in the end. So let's talk about David Moyes then, because uh, you, you did touch on that. And you really are a child of the, the David Moyes era. And it really is an mm. era, isn't it? I mean, 11 years, your highest ever Premier League finish, um, FA Cup final in 2009. And I think more than anything, a real sense of identity. Yeah, it, yeah it's... It's easy. I think it's quite trendy to bash Moyes now, isn't it, in regards to the, the, what he's become and the reputation he's got in the game now. But, but like you said, 11 years at a football club and you know, certainly 11 years at this version of Everton now, which is so fragile and so hostile and so fractured, is, you know, it seems like a minor miracle. And he, he, he did do a wonderful job. And you know, it didn't need the trophy that, that everyone wanted. Uh, sometimes the style of football, certainly in the early days, were wasn't particularly good, but you're right, he, he did bring an identity back to the football club. Um, he sought out the right sort of characters. He flung himself into his work. He, you know, he, he found brilliant players for everything, from, plucked from nowhere. He, he went on to be really good signings for the football club and he just he just steadied the ship and then took Everton on. And, and like I said, it's, you, you sort of go back to those, those days where Everton were finishing fifth and sixth and seventh and we'd sit there at the end of the season and go, oh, a bit disappointed we didn't get in the top four there, you know. We weren't we were far off. Maybe we went negative in, in so many games and you look back at that now and think, oh, that killed for something like that. Yeah. Um, and that, 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 that is disappointing. And I remember when David Moyes left at the time, you know, we spoke to a lot of a lot of people about the, you know, the transition and all, all fair and sound football and mindset, you know, everything are going to struggle with that Moyes. And we were all like, no, nah, we're, we're ready to move on and be more expansive now. You know, we don't, we don't need this fella. And then we got even more big-headed after Martinez came in in that first season and did really well. And we're like, yep, see, we were right. You know, we, yeah. we don't need to play this negative style of football. We could, we're one of the big boys now. We're, we're going to push on. And it all it all came tumbling down. But yeah, he instilled an ethos. He, he won the fans over straight away uh, by, by, by saying that to the People's Club early on. Um, and at a time where, probably probably before that, like, you look back and, and Everton's managers and they were changing managers quite frequently. Obviously, we had Walter Smith, we had Kendall for the third time, Joe had come in, you know, Mike Walker had been horrendous when he'd come in as well, and then you've got Howard again before that. Everton were a, a club that changed managers quite frequently. From under him, they became a club that were renowned for stability, and 
it was weird when he left. And now mm. you look at look at Everton changing managers and it, you don't really feel anything. It, it's sort of like, well, you expect this to happen. I remember that last day when he was at Goodison Park and he was going, it was like, it's just, more than anything, it's just going to be strange seeing somebody else on the sidelines. And I think when someone becomes part of the furniture like that after 11 years and you're not desperate to see the back of them, you're not feeling like this is all very stale, then you can only say fair do, he's done a good job. And it feels for me, his reign had two sliding doors moments, which was not getting into the Champions League after you lost to Villarreal in that, in that playoff yeah. in 2005, and Rooney going, what, just two years after his debut. Do you feel if either of those had gone your way, so if, if you get into the Champions League, or if Rooney stays, let's say, five or six years, things could have been a lot different for him? Potentially, yeah. But I suppose if Rooney had stayed, Everton might not have had the chance to be in the Champions League, because the team in 2004-2005, when Everton obviously finished fourth, was... Was sort of, you know, speaking to some of the players that were played in that side, was sort of forged out of a, you know, everyone's writing us off here, you know, mm. fuck you. Essentially, that, that's sort of what, what, what they all thought in, in that regard. It was, they all pulled together and they got, you know, they signed Marcus Ben to just, just run his bollocks off up, up front. They signed Tim Cale with that money as well, who obviously went on to become a real talisman for the football club. And without, you know, while Rooney... I'm sure we'll come to talk about later in those two years we burst onto the scene was, you know, made Evertonians feel things they did not, not really felt before. Um, the, the team spirit that, that was engendered by his sale and by the players that, that came in resulted in Everton finishing fourth that season. And, you know, it, it, the Villarreal one was, was frustrating. It was, I think, I think what's often forgotten is that if Duncan Ferguson's goal had been allowed to stand by Kalina, it only would have got us to extra time. It wouldn't have put us through. So there would have been no guarantee Everton going on and winning an extra time mm. or winning on penalties. Um, so, you know, I think that's that's something that's got, got lost in this. But, you know, I think, I, think you, I just look back on that and think the Everton was so unlucky to draw them. My word. You know, we, so we, harsh, we spoke... You get a team that good. I mean, Liverpool have been in a few Champions League playoffs and you get some tin pot side from yeah. you know, the bottom end of the Belgian league or whatever or from Hungary or from Bulgaria yeah. or whatever. You've got one of the top teams in Spain. I mean, that's just so yeah. cruel, isn't it? Well, that was the UEFA changed the rules, of course, as well, to let the Reds in, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and they got played, like, played the likes of TNS, I think, on the way. But right, as well, we were the holders. Yeah, but I, I remember um, when we spoke to, we spoke to Marcus Penn recently, and um, we asked him about that draw in Villarreal, and he said he remembers they all got together in the canteen, you know, it might have been Belfield or Finch Farm, where they trained. He said that when Everton drew Villarreal, Mikel Arteta had a big strop and like slammed his slammed his hand on the table and stormed out and like muttered to himself in Spanish because he knew how good they were. You know they finished second. They finished second in in the league uh, the year before. The year after, they were one kick of a ball away from being in the final against Barcelona before Jens Lehmann saved that that penalty for Arsenal. You know they were they were a serious outfit and for Everton to have been in a position where they could have took them to extra time, I think was a, was a testament to to, to Moyes' management and, and the spirit of that team. He probably should have taken them to extra time because that goal should have stuck, but there's certainly no guarantee Everton would have won it. But I, I, I don't know. I think if Everton got into the group stages of the Champions League, it, it would have been great memories for us as supporters. Having someone like a Madrid or Barcelona come to Goodison Park, that, that obviously would have been boss. But I don't, I don't think it would have changed Moyes' outlook too much. Certainly at that point when he was only four years into the job, I think he was very much of a, a mindset where he was someone who signed players of, of the right mentality he thought didn't really want to splash, splash big money on certain players you know that's somebody brought in Simon Davis and Phil Neville um, so they, they, they were the sort of players he really liked just play pe- people he could trust people who do what he wanted and it was actually when he spent big money on players that it didn't really work out quite as well you know thinking about like people like Andy Johnson who was good for a bit and then toiled yeah. 
James Beattie, who signed the season we finished fourth for six million, which is you know at the time it was like oh my god, six million pounds on, on, yeah. on a play. Everton, Everton, a flush here. Um, he didn't really work out. Um, he, he was really good at just cultivating that team spirit by bringing in you know bargain players. And I think he, he probably would have stuck with that regardless, thinking Everton got into the Champions League or not. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Wayne Rooney then. Um, mm. How exciting was it for you then, local lad, yourself, seeing another local lad, a proper blue, doing what he was doing for Everton at that time? I mean, it sort of came together beautifully for you at your age. As you said, your consciousness around mm. being an, Everton, an Evertonian is forming. He's emerging. He's probably the most exciting young player in the, in the country. That goal against Arsenal in October mm. 2002. Just kind of talk about all of that and, and just what it meant to you at the time. You'd have been what, sort of, you'd have been te- um, trying to work out? The yeah, so I was about three, yeah, about four years younger than... Well, yeah, so probably about right, actually, yeah. So he scores that goal against Arsenal in 2002, doesn't he? October 2002, yeah. 2002, and he was yeah. 16, about to turn 17 then. Yeah, yeah so I was, I was a few years behind him, but it, it, was, it, was, the, it was the best thing ever. It was, it was, it was amazing. And I, I, actually, I actually think, looking back, that Moyes managed him really well, because I think the club was sort of aware of what they had with him, mm. but they didn't want to expose him to too much. They didn't want to... Bear them out, and they certainly didn't want the you know the the rest of the football and world to look at it and go, Everton are in big trouble financially. We can get this lad on the cheap, which ultimately is what what ended up happening. But um, he was just thrilling, um, and I think I think a lot of people only got on to how good he actually was really at that summer tournament in two thousand and four when he just lit it up for England, and he was he was unbelievable. Um, probably the. It's mad to even say looking back then, but in two thousand and four, that tournament, he was probably the best player on the planet. He was, he was, he was ridiculous. He was ridiculous. The things he was doing on a football pitch, and I always remember the, the game against France, which England lost two one because you know um, Zidane scored a free kick, didn't he? And then scored a penalty in uh, injury time. And I remember watching the highlights package of that back recently of, of Rooney in that game, and it's it, he's genuinely incredible. And I, I think people, I think people look at him now because he's been on the scene for so long and a bit bored of him. And look at the player he's becoming, you know, latter years Everton and what he is at Derby now, where he's just this this fellow that sits in the middle of the pitch and sprays passes every now and then. It can't really run, but you know, he, he was rapid. Remember how quick he was when he first burst onto the scene? He was he was inc- he had incredible pace and just watching him off the you know off the leash for Everton every now and then because he didn't start every game. He came off the bench quite a lot. But whenever he was on the pitch, it was like this: this, this fellow's going to make something happen. And because he, he resonated with us, and because we, he was one of ours, it made it all the more special. And that's what made it all the more difficult when he left as well. But the Arsenal goal he scored that you mentioned there, obviously the, the famous one, and, and Clive, Clive Tilsley's commentary will sort of echo in eternity forever, won't it? But a week later, or maybe only four days later, he scores a winner at Leeds as well. I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember that goal, but he effectively picks the ball up 30, 40 yards out from goal. And he just dribbles past three or four players and slots in the bottom corner. And I think it, it was Everton's first. Yeah. yeah, it does ring a bell. Yeah. That. I can picture that. Now. Yeah, like I think I think it's I think it's yeah. I think it's Lucas Radderby who comes yeah. towards him and he just yeah. goes past him. Like you know, Radderby was a decent decent centre back. The away end, wasn't it? Because I'm pretty sure I then saw him yeah. peel off and celebrate in front of the Everton Everton fans. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. But he he was he was just ridiculous, and I, I sort of look at him and oh, every the, everything he's gone to achieve, you can't argue with what he's done. But I sort of look at him, and the, the best thing I've ever seen to describe him, I think it's one of your colleagues, the uh, the Guardian, actually, Daniel Harris, remember him saying this on Twitter, really could have been a fantasy player, but he ended up becoming a fantasy football player in regards to someone who got goals and assists, mm. and he was consistent in that sense. But when he was in those early days at Everton and what he could do, it felt like, you know, 
this lad could be one of the greats, all-time greats of his, his generation. And people will look at his United record, look at his England record and say that, that he has, he's done that, and he is that. Um, but you look at what Ronaldo's gone on to accomplish in the game of a similar age, you look at what Lionel Messi did, and, and the ability he had at that point, I think he could have gone on to be as good as those. But, you know, he could easily snipe back and go, well, I won five league titles in the Champions League with United. They're all-time top scorer, England's all-time top scorer. So it's one of them, really, but... I just remember thinking at that point that you know this lad could be anything he wants to be when he first bursts onto the scene. Gravison forward. Rooney, instant control. Passes his chances. Oh, brilliant goal! A brilliant goal! Remember the name, Wayne Rooney. It's Premiership history. The big league's youngest ever goal scorer signals his arrival on the big stage with a breathtaking goal to end Arsenal's unbeaten run surely in the final minute. Wayne Rooney, five days short of his 17th birthday, has just grown up. The control was impressive. The shot sensational. David Seaman's misery continues. But there was nothing that any goalkeeper could have done about that. Another Rooney record. And guess whose record he's broken? Michael Owen, that's who. Owen was the Premiership's youngest ever scorer. Rooney now is. I remember one of the first times I saw him was in a game against Bolton, which Everton actually drew nil-nil. But people, people still talk about it now, like in regards to his performance. Like people don't, people don't remember nil-nils from... You know, what eighteen years ago now. Yeah, yeah. But people people will often talk about his performance that day because remember Ivan Campo was playing for Bolton and you know the, the poor lad's head was spinning at the end of the game because he just couldn't control him. He, he couldn't control him and he did everything but score that day. I think he hit the post a couple of times, he played wide, he played through the middle. He was sensational. But um yeah, it's and I think I think it's it's something that's probably hindered young players coming through since then because you know what a standard to be held up to for the people like Ross Barkley and, and Tom Davis and, and others. It's you know it's impossible to live up to, to those sorts of levels. But I think whenever anyone comes through the academy at Everton now, the, the thing that's spoken about even even now, eighteen years on, is you know they, they could be the next Rooney, they could be as good as Rooney. But you know I think we could be sitting here a hundred years time. I don't think Everton would have produced a player quite like him ever again. Yeah, and when and when he came back then a couple of years ago, was that kind of like for you a sense of making up for lost time? I mean, it didn't go particularly well. Do, do you almost wish it didn't happen in the end? There were some good moments. I remember when he scored on his second debut against Stoke. That was you know that was great, and Everton won the game. I remember being at Manchester City as well. The, a few days later, we scored yeah. the goal to put us ahead that night, and yeah, you know, we gave it the big one to the City fans. Um, penalty at Anfield was great. Um, good for him to score a Merseyside derby, obviously, of course, in what was it? <laughs> a horrendous game. Um, the halfway line goal against West. Yeah, the, the, I think if you, if you look back at it, you could, what you could say is look, the game was great moments in that season, in a season which was, you know, abject and utterly forgettable. And then they were Everton having Sam Aldice as the manager at the end. Um, but I think the game was great moments, but most of them came in the first half of the campaign. And when he dropped back into midfield, it was, you know, it was, it was quite hard to watch at times. And, I think it was probably the best decision for him to, to move on. I think the club got a bit of money for him, which was good. It was good to get our wages off the books. But aside from those moments, you say probably didn't really work now. Has that been a source of regret for you that you haven't had the, the, sort of the Gerrard equivalent at Everton? You haven't had um, a local lad, Rooney, Barkley, Davis, as you mentioned, that haven't really established themselves on the team? It would have, it would have been nice, but yeah. 
You know, how many how many fans can say they've had a Gerard? You know, really in in the world. You know, how how many football clubs have had a player in the last you know in, in our lifetimes that has played for them, who's come through the academy, who's been a local lad that's, that's inspired them to win things. You know, it's probably about four or five of those players that exist in, yeah. in you know in in our generation. So I think I wouldn't say I'm entitled enough to think that. I think it's I think it's just hard for young lads coming through whatever to like said with the Rooney factor. And I think, you know, someone like Tom Davis, ultimately, it's, you know, he, he burst onto the scene as well with that goal against Manchester City and everyone sort of thought, wow, this lad's going to be incredible. And it turns out he's just an, an all right player. And, and that, that's fine. That, that's absolutely fine. But people think back to that, that goal against City and, and what he did there and, you know, expect them to be more than that. Um, but if, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say I feel entitled enough to, that we shouldn't be, you know, Everton should have produced a Stephen Gerrard because, you know, not many people do, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, maybe Everton should get better scouting some of these lads like Gerrard and Fowler and, and Trent Alexander-Arnold and all that. Um, but, you know, what, what Everton had with Rooney was special. I suppose you could compare it a bit to what's going on with, with Alexander-Arnold and Liverpool now, but it's always that bit better when it's a striker, isn't it? I think when you've got a forward who's yeah. doing it, it's always that bit more exciting. Oh, it's far more sexy. Absolutely, no doubt. About that. <laughs> um, let's just talk about your sort of match day routine, really, and your whole experience going to Goodison. So, do you, you stand in the Gladys Street? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I do, mate. Yeah, sit, yeah. sit in the Gladys Street. Yeah. I mean, has that got an identity? I should say, actually, me if I'm wrong, if you're watching a game at Goodison Park on TV, the Gladys Street is the stand behind the goal on the right. That's uh, it. Yeah. So the dugouts in front of you, and then the goal to the right, the Gladys Street at the uh, behind the goal on the right. Has it kind of got an identity? Is it where you sort of start off as a, as a kid? Is it where all the cool teenagers hang around? What does it not, mean? Uh, yeah, sort of. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's not where you go when you're very young. It's not like where you, your dad would take it. It's it's probably it's, it's quite unforgiving, really. It's it's probably the closest thing Everton have got to you know. If you're going to compare it, it's probably like the, the cop at Liverpool, yeah. or like the Gallagher end or Stratford end. It's it's where the more vociferous supporters sit. Um, it, you know, I, I, like, I like sitting behind. Sometimes I can't see really what's happened at the other end, uh, which, which can be annoying, but it's, it's quite angry. It's, it's quite vocal. Um, if players aren't pulling the weight, I think there's people who sit in there that are happy to give them a lot of shit, which is, you know, absolutely fine by me in that sense. Um, but it's certainly the, the most passionate part of the stand. But, um, I think that the thing with Everton, and I don't know if this is, you know, a case of all supporters. I think what 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 gets Goodison Park going, and what gets gets the Gladys Street going, is when there's a bad decision go against us from a referee or something like that. You know, one of the one of the moments people talk about in, in regards to Moyes' time, and one of the moments that turned our season around was when Phil Neville tackled Ronaldo, won the ball, and the referee gave a foul, and Everton were one 0 down that day, and they come they came back and drew one all against United. And it was sort of like Goodison Park was ridiculous after that. Like after after one player made a tackle and the referee blew up for a, a foul. Like everyone was just fuming off the Reds, losing the plot in, in the in the stadium. And that was the catalyst for everyone just getting really behind the team and, and getting onto them. Whereas before that it was quite flat, you know, Everton were one no down against United. They were knocking the ball around. Standard fair, really. But that, that moment sort of triggered everyone. So I think it's that sense of injustice, really, when, when something goes wrong against us, the, the the Gladys Street really sort of comes into its own and it gets angry and hostile. Um, and I think that's when I think back to the, the best nights I've seen at Goodison Park and the best you know moments Everton have had. That's sort of been the trigger for it. It's been that that anger and the hostility. Um, you know, sometimes the wards are in players, admittedly, but uh, <laughs> um, but mainly towards the opposition. Um, when something when an opposition player does something a bit shit, Alice or the referee yeah, makes yeah. a bad decision, and it's just sort of like lighting a match, anything go with them, but. 
know, in recent years, fit like every football stadium, it has its quiet moments and everyone just, you know, is waiting to be sparked into life by something happening like, like that or like a, a player scoring a goal or something, something akin to those sorts of things. But, but in the main, it's, it's quite a gnarly place, quite an angry place. And if you want to get, if you want to get a song going or you want to sing when you go to the match, it's probably the best place to sit at Goodison Park, I'd say. Yeah, very much so. It is, yeah, it feels sort of cock like in that sense. It's at the same part of the ground, and it, it, I think it's, yeah, it feels like the same the place where all the songs yeah. start and where the angriest fans are as well. Yeah, I think what the thing I'd say, the, the, obviously, the, the cops have got like scarves and flags and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's obviously, the, you know, optically, that's the difference. I'd say, I think Liverpool and their supporters are, this is going to sound like a, like a derogatory word, but it's not. It's, it feels like more orchestrated in regards to the singing mm. and the things that happen. It feels like there's, you know, there's a pattern there in regards to we're going to sing this song and this song and that. And I think the Gladys Street is more just noise with a song every now and then, if that makes sense. And I, I, yeah, I, I, don't mean that to, I don't mean that to be like a, a, a slant on Liverpool saying like, oh, this is like you know, people go with song sheets and all that sort of thing. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I think that's one of the, the differences between the, the, the two sort of, those two mm. stands, if you will. I think... The Gladys Street sometimes it's just, you know, you, you won't really hear, you know, intricate songs or melodies or anything like that. Every now and then, it's mainly just like a wall of noise. Every now and then you'll hear a bit of a tune or a song about a player. Whereas I think the cops are a little bit different in that yeah. sense. No, no, that's true. I mean, with with the cop, I I I, uh, I sit, sit stroke standing uh, stand block three hundred five, which is quite high up in the cop, and it. I've had two different seats in the cop, and uh, I was a bit, I was lower down when I first moved there in 2015. My second year having a season ticket, having been in the Anfield Road in the first season, and that was quiet. And that's where the older guys sit. But then you go up to mm. 305, and it feels like that is where the songs are generated from. And it's not. Yeah. I know what you mean by orchestrate, but it's not orchestrated. But it seems to be in that pocket is where the songs start, and it's the people in that area yeah. that get everything going as well. So, but yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely get that. And obviously, Goodison Park is coming to an end. You, you know, Everton are going to be moving to Bramley Moor mm. in the next few years, all being well. Um, are you ready to sort of move on from Goodison? Has it, has it, I mean, it's a very unique ground, again, for people who haven't been or who don't know too much about it. It is, um, it is a throwback ground, um, very unique, you know, in this era of sleek new stadiums. And as you get your own sleek new stadium, do you feel it's sort of time has come and gone or will you miss it? Probably, yeah. But, you know, like you said, I'll absolutely miss it. It's, I'm dreading that day when you walk out there for the last mm. time. Like, even thinking about it now is, is, is horrible. Um, and in an ideal world, I think Everton will look to develop. Um, Try and maintain some of that atmosphere um, because you know it's been there for you know so long now. There's been so many things happen there. You speak to people who, who go up and down the country watching football, and you know while I was an away fan, I don't think the, the view is particularly good. I'm not I'm not sat in that end, obviously. Uh, but people speak about the character of the ground and, and the atmosphere when it's on it, and I think Evertonians will miss it, and, and football fans in, in general will miss it. But that's sort of your heart speaking, you know, my head speaking, is saying that if Everton are going to move. Going down to Bramley Moor Dock, which is going to be on the waterfront, building what looks like it's going to be a unique, iconic arena, and regenerating a part of the city which has fallen on hard times and you know has effectively become a bit of a, a ruin. It's probably about as good as they could probably hope for, to be fair. So yeah. while you know, I will probably stay in Goodison Park for about three hours after that last game with there and, and try and get my seat out and all that. The sensible, me sensible, I'd say, and for, for numerous reasons. And, for numerous right reasons, what's happening at Bramley Moor Dock potentially in the future? And you, you've got to say potentially because you never know. Everything these things yeah. have fallen fallen short before, albeit this one looks like it might actually go through. And um, what's potentially going to happen down there is is fantastic. And probably what else is important to say as well is what Everton are going to leave behind at Goodison Park and in L four if they move. You know, they're going to build a uh, effectively a dementia centre to help people 
uh, with regards to their mental health. Okay. They're going to build for they're going to build facilities for for people in that sense as well. They're going to build a free school. They're going to build accommodation for people who have fallen on hard times that we can keep as well. So they're going to leave behind a, a footprint. And one of the lines that the club have come out with recently, when in regards to any updates on the stadium, and you know this is it sounds quite cheesy, but the fact that people say everything will never leave L4 and Goodison Park because they're going to leave a footprint in that area. Like I said, that sounds cheesy, but if, if they leave something behind like that, then that is. That, that is absolutely the case. So, yeah, it's going to be hard, but I think if, if this all comes off, as we hope it will, then it's probably about as good as ever to go to hope for. The leg- yeah, the legacy sounds great. And um, I can absolutely confirm as well, Matt, the, the view from your way end at Goodison is absolutely shit. <laughs> it's like a lot of box, isn't it? <laughs> it's awful, yeah, it depends where you are a little bit, but there's there's a bit, if you it's the lower bullens, and if you stand right to one end, you're actually technically off the pitch. You're behind, you actually yeah. go past the corner flag, which is possibly the worst thing I've ever I've sat at the back of the Anfield Road end as well, mate. That's not that's not great either. I tell yeah. you, crouch, crouch and die. That's to try and see. <laughs> fair play, fair enough. Right, man, let yeah. you go, Sings. You've been absolutely brilliant, and um, it's getting late. And I believe Barcelona playing Bayern Munich as well now. So we both. Oh wow, yeah, time time flew by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to get onto that. So anyway, I let you go. Just a couple of things before we go. Let's first of all touch on your, your Everton all time eleven. Then that you've done for us. Yeah. I'll tweet this out as a graphic as well when I promote this. Um, podcast as well on Twitter so people can see your 11 sort of information but it's 4-4-2 Nigel Martin in goal uh, back four right to left Seamus Coleman Phil Jagielka Joni Lescott and Leighton Baines midfield Andre Kanchelskis of course Mikel Arteta mm-hmm. Tim Cahill and Stephen Pienaar and up front Wayne Rooney and Romelu Lukaku and I think what really stands out to me is although it's not been a great time to be an Everton fan you've seen mm-hmm. a lot of very good players I guess the big shame is you didn't see them all at the same time yeah, it's not a bad side, that is it? When you run really off like team. that, yeah, really. Yeah. Good I, think that, I, think, I think that back four might have played together a few times. Yeah, maybe. that's very moist back four, isn't it? That back four. Yeah, 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 and you know, there's part of that team where I've sort of picked based on partnerships, and there's part of it where it's just picked based on. Well, he was a you no know, mid midfield. You won't play Mikel Arteta and Tim Cale in centre midfield yeah, together. Yeah. Put it put it put it that way. You know, I've had to shoe on both of them. They're in <laughs> there, but you know. Um, Lescott and Jack Yelko are excellent as a duo. You know, I think I think there's, there's a lot been said about Julian Lescott since he left Everton because of the way he left Everton. Um, but he was he was an excellent player, and you know, given what he went on to do in Manchester City, I think is, is indicated that as well. You know, becoming a league champion and mm. a regular a regular feature in, in their side. Him and Jags were, were excellent. Um, on the left hand side, Baines and P and R just poetry in motion watching them two together. Um, and I think while David Moyes' teams get you know, ever since teams got called negative and, and pragmatic, you know, watching them too was was a delight. You know, the technical ability, the understanding, the quality they both provided. Um, I think it's rare you get partnerships quite like that where two players are, are so in sync together on a flank and, and they were excellent at it. Um, Seamus Coleman, obviously still at the football club. I think the, the only one there, yeah, he's the only, only one on the team who, who still would have been uh, football club, yeah. yeah. Baines has just retired, obviously, so yeah. Yeah. And Mikel Arteta is the manager of Arsenal, so that tells you how long ago he Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I know. But Col- Coleman, you know, he's coming towards the end now. Still, still a decent player, but, you know, for a few seasons, he was one of the best full-backs in the league. Um, you know, I think he got into the PFA Team of the Year one year as well. He, he was excellent, certainly in 13-14. Andre, I've said everything I need to say about him. Wonderful footballer. Um, and, yeah, Kale and Arteta, I think, sort of define the Moyes era in that sense, don't they? I think, you know, he was great at signing those players either would come in and have the right attitude and be gritty and be nasty and be honourable like Tim Cale was and you know, scored the unimportant goal. But every now and then as well, he'd pick up a bit of a gem like Stephen Pienaar for £2 million for Borussia Dortmund 
like Mikel Arteta for, for £2 million as well. You know, when you think about Arteta and how good he was, £2 million Everton got him for. Insane how, how, how good he was. Um, you know, he played wide quite a lot, um, but sentiment, he was excellent as well. And then Rooney, obviously, up front. You know, don't want Rooney playing sentiment in front of the back four. <laughs> Absolutely not. Keep him, right? keep him up front. Keep him up front, scoring goals. Um, and that is obviously Rooney, largely... Yeah, yeah baby Rooney, baby, Absolutely, yeah. And um, and Rom is just, you know, he took for granted how, how good he was in front of goal. Absolutely ridiculous goal scorer. Probably the best finisher I've seen play for Everton in my lifetime. Um, and it, we, I think we, I think Everton sort of reached that point with him now where we've, the anger's gone about the way he left in the football club. The anger's gone for the way he celebrated when he scored against us for the United. And everyone's quite happy to see him do really well at Inter Milan now um, because... I, I have to be honest, when he moved to Inter, I sort of thought, this is a lad who broke onto the scene at 15 for Anderlecht, has played a lot of football, doesn't get injured much. And I sort of thought that maybe Everton had seen the best of him. And it's, you know, in a similar sort of way to what happened with Fernando Torres, where he broke onto the scene at 16, and he sort of just, his form fell off a cliff when he got to his late 20s. I sort of thought that was going to happen to Ron, but he's gone to Italy and he's working under a world-class manager, playing alongside a world, another world-class forward and Latoro Martinez. And he's tearing it up and he's looking absolutely brilliant. And I think Evertonians are happy to see him now. I think there's been a few little things on social media from him talking about his time at the football club. The club have messaged him a few things. I think Richardson tweeted the other day to him saying, you know, you need to get yourself back here and all that sort of stuff. So I think the anger sort of died away now. People people can reflect on his time at Everton and say, you know, what a footballer he was. Just what, one name that didn't make the team I was curious about, and he would give you some balance in midfield, Gareth Barry. Love Gareth Barry, yeah. But I had to have I had to have Kinchelskis and and Pino on the wings and Rooney and Roma front. So I, I, I think I'll probably want to put Idrissi Gay ahead of Gareth Barry. Yeah, he was one, yeah. he, he was excellent for a long time. And, you know, watching him play in a Champions League quarterfinal the other night, you know, what he's gone to do. And you know, certainly doesn't look out of place in that PSG team. Uh, but he was excellent. But Gareth Barry for me is the ultimate. You don't realise how good he is, footballer, until you go and watch him in the flesh. Because when we signed him, I sort of thought, what's, what's all this about? I remember when Liverpool were linked to them, actually, when Benitez, because Benitez loved them, didn't he? Tried to yeah, sign them a few times. Some I remember that. Him, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember thinking, why are the Reds going after after him? Because they've got you know Alonso and Mascherano was 2009. Yeah. Did he join? Yeah, did, you know, obviously. Mascherano come the season before. Yeah, Barry's going to replace Alonso. He sounds remarkable now, but I should say at the time wasn't as crazy as you thought because Alonso's form mm. had sort of fallen off the cliff a bit, and then he stayed because mm. Barry didn't come, and then he ended up being brilliant again, and then left around Madrid. So yeah, it was all yeah. Good. But Barry, you know, as soon as you saw him in, in the flesh, you thought, oh yeah, this, this, this is why all these top managers want him in the side. This is why he always gets picked for England by Capello. Why he was in the team at Man, under, at Man City under Mancini. Why Benitez wanted him. He's just read the game so well. Right place, right time. Calm on the ball. Just a really steady influence. And you know, Everton got him on a free and had two or three really good years out of him. The only other one, you know, sort of talking about this with a few people today, the only other one people suggested was was Duncan Ferguson and while he was, you know, someone I absolutely loved growing up, he sort of you look at his his record as a player, the goals he scored, you know, the times he got sent off in big games and while he was a, a talismanic figure for the football club in, in dark times, um certainly wasn't a prolific goal scorer. Uh, certainly wasn't someone who kept his head under pressure. And you know, one of the stats that's emerged from this season is that Dominic Carver Lewin's Hall of Goals this season is more than Duncan Ferguson Everton got ever got in a Premier League season for Everton. So mm. yeah, it just goes to show how prolific he was. But I, I love Duncan, I love what he did for us as a as a manager as well in the season. But uh, you, know, you can't really argue with Rooney and Rom, can you up front? 
no, that's that is a genuinely excellent front two. Yeah, it's <laughs> not getting fun of those. Uh, that's a really good team. As I said, it really sort of caught my eye that yeah, it's not been the best time to be an Evertonian, but you have seen some really talented players. And uh, I mean, that midfield superb. I think personally, yeah. Yeah. there's no no one's making a tackle in it, but it, they can all play. Um, <laughs> Matt, you've been fantastic. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, mm. If Everton could give you one thing in the next five years, and it has to be realistic, so not three league titles mm. and two European Cups, but something realistic, <laughs> in years, what would you want them to give you? FA Cup. Yeah. The FA Cup. Yeah. I just want to see whoever the captain is. It's been passed around like anything this year, so I don't know who it would be. <laughs> I just want to see Carlo lifting a trophy up, you know, in his, in his immaculate suit. Drenched in champagne in front of a packed Everton end at Wembley. You know, that's, that is not too much to ask for, you know. And as much as I don't think that'll happen, it's, it's horrible to say, you know, just, just seeing Everton scab the, the way to the, the FA Cup final, the League Cup final, and getting over the line. And, and first to finally just say, never here in 1995 ever again. That, that would be lovely. I think that's very reasonable, very possible, given Wigan won the FA Cup, what, seven years ago. So um, Yeah, then we went and got their manager and he look how that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Jones, thank you very much. Pleasure, mate, anytime.